0: Okay, Nehemiah, the first seven chapters of Nehemiah, riveting chapters where they're building a wall with enemies coming from the north, the south, the east, and the west, all Jew haters, anti-Semitic people that have existed really ever since Abraham was called out. And we're going to read a little bit more about him tonight. How he was called out of the land of Babylon to go to the, into the um, area that we now know as Israel. There has been anti-Semitism. And um, I believe that's because the devil knows that Messiah... Uh, would be coming through the Jewish line. And and then after Messiah came, that's just all continued um, as well, just uh, to try to annihilate the, the Jewish people. It's just been um, the next book that we're um, after. This is the book of Esther. We will see it in the most graphic way, Haman. Um, literally passing a law to completely annihilate all Jewish people. We'll see that in the book of Esther. But in uh, Nehemiah, the, the Jews, after uh, being in Israel for 350 years as a sovereign nation, meaning they have their own king, and uh, being really that uh, picture um, of uh, a kingdom that would be a foreshadowing of the millennial kingdom that is yet to come. But going through just a series of rebellion, there would be good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, good king, and there'd be revival with every good king. But finally, their rebellion got so much, they were... Just as the prophets had repeatedly prophesied to them, they were exiled to Babylon. There had been a previous sort of exile all over the Assyrian world, um, up in of the Jews up in the north, but then the south. They went over to Babylon, and through a series, uh, the uh, prophet Jeremiah said after seventy years they would return to Jerusalem. Uh, in the book of Ezra, right before Nehemiah, we saw the first uh re-gathering, or the first uh, return of the Jews who lived in Babylon uh, to the, uh, Jerusalem and the land of Israel. Uh, then uh, after that, there was a second one in Ezra, and then uh, under Nehemiah, there's a third. And Nehemiah comes back with the intention of building a wall, just because they had previously, under in the book of Ezra, they had built a temple, but uh, there was just no security uh, because there was a lot of anti-Semitism and they didn't like the worship in the temple. And so uh, they started building this wall and we just saw, it, it's just a study in what Satan does to attack you. If you weren't here, didn't listen, weren't able to listen to the first seven chapters, go get them. Uh, the the uh, all, Every... Device that Satan uses is used against them, and they're just a ragtag group of people. They are rebuilding the wall. Uh, There's not a Jewish king anymore. Uh, The first temple was built under Solomon, where Solomon was in control, not only of Israel, but uh, practically the whole known world at the time, Uh, and uh, they they didn't have security issues under Solomon, but under here in nehemiah the the persian king who had given permission for nehemiah to do this he's like whatever 800 miles away and they just the enemies are are all around trying every trick um, in the book Uh, lies mockery uh, division uh, uh, amongst them none of it works they finish it in 52 days And they're all just, at the beginning of chapter 8, they're all sort of in shock. Wow, look at what God just did. Now, uh, as we said last time, one of the biggest dangers in the Christian life is after great spiritual victories, You, you, you do some great thing. Uh, for the Lord or the Lord does a great thing through you and pride will set in and then you're just on your way to another, a a, a low in your life through a backslide or, or, or whatever because when pride sets in, Um, The Bible says there's always destruction after that. This was different. Verse 8 of chapter 1 says, All the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. And so this isn't a leader telling them, Hey, show up and I'm going to read you the word of God. This is the people themselves or who are in such awe of what God did. They're like, whoa, would you please, someone go get a Bible and start reading it. We we want to worship God. We want to get to know more about God. This is a great thing that has just happened. And so they get Ezra uh, to come and read the, the book of the law. Verse 8, again, we were in this a couple weeks ago. Uh, they're all out there, in, including... Uh, just uh, they're all out there men and women uh, and it says in verse 3 everyone who could understand and it says in verse 8 that they read the law distinctly from the book in the law of God and they gave the sense and three they helped them to understand the reading and so this is a big Calvary Chapel verse. <laughs> There's about fifteen hundred Calvary chapels. We're all about chapter by chapter reading of the Word of God. We're we're about not just you know putting a Bible somewhere in your house. We're about diving into it and chewing it and reading it. And number one, what did we say in verse eight? When you read the Word of God, read it distinctly. Read it slowly. If you if you have to read, when I read the Bible now on my own personal devotion time, I usually am writing it out, but I write out the first, the oftentimes the, um, the verse two or three times, reading it distinctly. Just I just write it out, the verse. I just write it out two or three times, right in a row, sometimes five times, but reading it distinctly and, and it, slowly just, uh, it, it, so you're not just ripping through it, um, but then, In verse 8, the second thing is, and they gave the sense to the people. Like, what does this mean? And so, okay, I'm reading it distinctly, but what does this mean? And then the third thing there, it says, and they helped them to understand the reading, which, does anyone remember the number three from two weeks ago? Wow, I will be so impressed if you remember. What's the third thing? Where's Dan? Dan, I'm just going to totally put the spotlight on you. Wow, this is really rude. This is, love is not rude. Uh, this may not be love. Uh, that's, by the way, that's 1 Corinthians thirteen five. Love is not rude. What, what, what did you say? The first two are read distinctly. The second one is you give the sense, meaning you understand what it means. And the third one is, oh, come on. Application. application, application. That's right. And so, uh, for example, you know, the, 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 the just an example of application would be um, just as just as I just mentioned, I said you read distinctly. A, a, a way to to apply that particular verse to you is just what I said. You guys need to get up in the, in the morning and maybe you can read and, and write it three times. That's an example of applying what the word of God says. Uh, and, and so anytime you apply what the word of, uh, uh, of God says, that's, that's what it means. It's a, if, for example, if the, if the verse says, humble yourself before the sight of the Lord, an application might be, you get on your knees and you humble yourself and say god uh, what do you I, i'm I, I don't understand I'm, a, I'm i'm fragile i'm i'm weak show me what to do that's an example of application if the bible says you should be kind the the application part should be you know you go to your wife and you say hey honey can i do something for you that's kindness and so that's the applying part so three things So important that churches do, and that you do when you read the Word of God. Number one, read it distinctly, carefully, slowly. Number two, give the sense, meaning, what does this mean? And number three, application. So now you've told me what it means. What is that, you know, how do you apply that? The Bible says, love suffers long. Best application I think of, especially since my... uh, Uh, My daughter just gave birth today to my fourth grandchild. Her name is, um, don't tell me, Noelle Juliet. Her name is, but long-suffering, long-suffering. Best example is someone staying up all night with a sick, crying child. She's not sick, but a, a, a sick, crying child. Suffering long, rather than saying, I'm just done with this. Um, I'm taking off now. No, that's not what a loving mother does. They suffer long, but that's the application part. The reading distinctly is okay, long suffering, suffering long, that's reading distinctly. The meaning is you suffer a long time with someone. That's the meaning. The application is mom stays up all night with her baby. Does everyone get me before I go on? That's what verse eight means. It's a big Calvary Chapel verse to say the least. Um, and then it says, so there, he's reading through the law. Verse 9 says, Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people and all the people, said, This day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept. when they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send the portions to those who have nothing, for, not, uh, for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And by the way, I didn't plan this. I mean, just the fact that I've been teaching about the joy of the Lord on Sunday for three Sundays, I did not plan this out. The Lord did, though. The, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so what's going on now? These people, they're so in awe of what the Lord has done. They're like, someone grab a Bible and start reading it, They're hearing the reading of the Bible. They realize they fall so short of what the Bible is telling them. They start weeping. They start weeping, and uh, the, the Levites and others show up, and they're like, wait a second here. Don't weep. This is a day of celebration. This is a day of celebration. So um, there's two reasons it was a day of celebration. One is that it's the first day of, it appears to be the first day of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles, which just ended last Friday, uh, is the feast where the, we're gonna read about it in a little bit because it's gonna go over it, uh, where the Israelites remember that God protected them for 40 years in the wilderness. Now it's really interesting that this invasion of Israel happened at the very tail end or as the tabernacle, piece of tabernacle was just finishing up, uh, that's when they the, the, the terrorists poured over the border in uh, from the Gaza strip and and started uh, killing people last um, last saturday uh, same time we 're in it right now Feast of tabernacles that 's what this is this is commemorating they 're doing it in the first day of the Feast of tabernacles I think it 's a seven or eight day feast and it is a feast of rejoicing, but there 's another piece too, and that is that God has done a great thing, he's done a wonderful thing, and it's never God's will for you to stay weeping and lamenting. Now clearly, there's a place for weeping and lamenting and crying when you realize that you've sinned, you've fallen short of God's word that's called godly repentance. By the way, there can be worldly repentance where someone is weeping and crying, but God's not in the picture. Uh, On a fairly regular basis as a pastor, I see weeping and it has nothing to do with God. It's just people who their consequences of their sin are crushing them. But there's no repentance there. They're not going to God. So remember Judas it says that Judas, after he realized what he had done by betraying Jesus Christ, it says what in the King James Version? There's a K- King James Version guy right there, John. I'm putting the spotlight on it. What does it say that Judas did? He repented. He repented. That, see, he knew. I knew John knew. I... It says Judas repented. What? Repented? What are you talking about? He repented he realized that what he did was terrible. I have no doubt he was weeping. But what place did God have in his repentance? John, I'll give you a second chance. What place did God have in his repentance? Zero. None. Whereas what happened you know, with, with Peter? Peter denied. He betrayed Jesus in a way, but what happened with his repentance? You guys Remember? What he did when he saw Jesus on the shore, he was out fishing, last chapter of the book of John, what did he do? He dove out of the boat and swam to the Lord. That's what you do when you're really repenting. You go to the Lord. That's godly repentance. By the way, definition of godly repentance is 2 Corinthians 7.11. I always remember it because it's the convenience store. You want to read about what godly repentance really looks like? Go to 2 Corinthians 7, 11. But th- this is godly repentance right here. The, the, what, what you're reading about, these guys are hearing the word of God and they're, they're weeping before the Lord. The Lord is, is, is all over their repentance. And so it looks like 2 Corinthians chapter seven eleven which says uh, which Paul says, "You repented in a godly manner, what diligence it produced in you, he says to the Corinthians, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation like they're just indignant they 're disgusted before the Lord, what fear of God." It says, what vehement desire to follow the Lord. What zeal to follow the Lord. What vindicate to vindicate God's good reputation there. That's Second Corinthians 7-11. That's what's going on here. But then they come in and say, okay, th- there's a time where, listen, I know, I- I know men and women, they, all they want to do is sorrow over their sin over and over again, week in, week out. Year in in year out. And all that is, is another form of sin. It's pride. It's refusal to accept the grace of God. When you just continue mourning over your sin, even though you've repented, you've left it, it's your pride that's preventing you from just accepting the grace of God and moving on with the Lord. And so they come in, and they said twice, verse 9 and verse 10, they say, do not weep, this day is holy. Now, some of you have heard me say this before. Uh, well, they say, they say, do not weep, this day is holy, and then at the end of verse 10, because the joy of the Lord is your strength. I've heard, I've heard throughout my Christian life an expression, God is more concerned about your holiness than about your happiness. The statement makes absolutely no sense, biblically. The reason is what is holiness? God. Did you say God? What is holiness? God is holy. Who is God? Who's the Son of God, the second person in the in the Trinity, Jesus Christ? And what's the quote I've been quoting from Jesus, John chapter 15? He says, "I told you all this stuff." John chapter 15, I think it's verse 11. What was the reason? You guys remember? That's right. I've told you all these things. He's just about to be crucified. He's just about to be crucified. And what does he tell them? In John chapter um, 15, verse 11, I've told you all these things so that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. So it makes no sense to say that God cares more about your holiness than your happiness because happiness is is holiness. Is everyone following me? Because holiness is Jesus. If you want to know what holy looks like, who do you look at? Don't look in the mirror. Look at Jesus Christ. And every attribute of Jesus Christ, that's what holiness is. And if he is saying, my joy, I want you to have my joy. And then he repeats it. and uh, He repeats the exact same thing in... Uh, John chapter seventeen verse thirteen, as he's praying to the Father, he's referring. He wants them to have his holiness. John chapter seventeen, he's praying to God the Father, and in verse thirteen, he says, he says, he's talking to uh, to his Father. He says, I, I, my objection for speaking to them the uh, to the world was that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So, and 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 then it says in Matthew. Twenty-three verse, ooh, Matthew twenty-five, uh, verse twenty-three, uh, the parable of the talents. Um, you know this one, where the the people, uh, the guys who got the talents and actually went out and made more talents. Uh, he received them and he says, "Enter into the joy of the Lord." He didn't say, "Enter into the misery of the Lord." The joy of the Lord. So. Saying that God is more concerned about your holiness than your happiness makes no sense because part of his holiness is his joy. And and so they're telling the people look, this day is holy to the Lord, God is filled with joy, and therefore do not mourn nor weep. Instead, go your way, eat the fat, meaning the barbecue. And what's the most expensive piece of, of beef? What's the most expensive b- beef? Uh, um, the what? Wagyu beef? <laughs> Stephanie, do you agree? What's the most important cut of beef? It's got to have a lot of fat. Does Wagyu have a lot of fat? So I thought, it's the. isn't it the ribeye? with a lot of fat. It's, it's the pieces with a lot of fat. It's like to get the good stuff. Go have yourself a party with me. I'm at the party. I'm at the, uh, what's that? Does that have a lot of fat? Okay, it's the pieces with a lot of fat that have the best taste. And he's saying, go eat the fat, drink the sweet, meaning, Have a party, but I'm in the middle of the party. This isn't like um, have a party and forget about God. This is have a party and rejoice in the Lord at the party. He says, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. Meaning, part of joy is what? It's giving. It's giving. It says, you know, don't sorrow, be filled with joy, give to people who don't have, for nothing is... Because, verse 10, this day is holy to our God, do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Listen. You have more strength when you have joy... than when you don't have joy. That is just so obvious I shouldn't even have to say it. I mean, when when, when I have joy, joy of the Lord, but it's talking about happiness. When I have the happiness that's there because I know who God is, I know how wonderful he is. Uh, On Sunday morning, I have a lot of joy often um, uh, going into the service because, wow, the Lord has just spoken a word to me and it's just gives me so much joy, which allows me to just have a lot of strength for ministry. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And and so we should always be monitoring our joy every single day. If we don't have joy, it's like, okay, Lord, what's wrong? And sometimes you may not know what's wrong. I mean, sometimes it'll take a couple days. But usually he reveals it to me fairly quickly. You, know, you were really unloving to that man last night or your word says you're supposed to dwell with your wife with understanding and you were not kind with her or you did is, is there something that i i wasn't fully aware of that's affecting my joy and okay like something's wrong lord what is it And he's faithful to tell you because it's, it's about him and your service for him, and he wants to, you to serve him with strength. It's, it's, he's more interested in you having joy than, than you are, as good as it may feel, because he wants you to serve him with strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Verse 10, so the Levites quieted all the people saying, be still for the day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people, verse 12, went their way to eat and drink to send portions and rejoice greatly. So this is awesome. They actually obey. They actually obey. They recognize that their sorrow was sin. It was was misrepresenting the Lord. It wasn't holy. says they went their way to eat and drink to send portions and rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. Now on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe. So Ezra had been there for 13 years when Nehemiah showed up. He was still living there. He was still there and it says, in order to understand the words of the, law, uh, of the law. So this is interesting here. This is training leaders here. It says, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites gathered to Ezra in order to understand the words of the law. So part of what I do as a pastor is I teach leaders and I, and I disciple leaders. The, the, the elders of course they're all discipling me too but 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 uh i'm, I'm teaching them about the word of uh, of the lord in order to so that they can go out and teach the word of the lord to others and the reason that the, the number one reason and we say this a lot that we have a nursery and a sunday school is a recognition that the best thing that we can do for kids is to teach their parents the word of God over in the Longwood Hall. Because if we teach their parents the word of God, those parents are going to be better parents to those kids. So that's the number one way we can love kids, is to free their parents up so their kids aren't by them, squir- you know, squirming and you know they're losing, they can't pay attention because their kids are doing this or that. If you can build them up, you can build them up, they're gonna be so much better. The, the thing, the, I always think of single parents, single moms, a lot, where you know, it's very, very difficult being a single mom. If you get a single mom in Longwood Hall on Sunday morning and teach her the word of God in such a way where her, her, her kids are, are, are not there we have some single moms with like multiple kids. That, that it's, it's really, really hard. And, but you got to get those kids away from her and teach her the word of God. That's going to be the best thing that we can do for those kids is to do that with their mom. She's just going to be a better mom. Or if it's a single dad, a better dad. But if, a married couple as well. It's the best thing that we can do for them. Of course, we're also wanting to feed the Word of God to the kids. However, that's not primarily our responsibility. It's the parents' responsibility to feed the Word of God. And, 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 and parents, you should not be relying on the church to feed your kids the Word of God. It's your responsibility. Now, it's great that we can do that, and it's a privilege that we can do it. We're doing it tonight. But, but, but um, we want to train you so that you are feeding them the Word of God in, in the home. I can tell you right now, there's gonna be more influence Long term in their life by you teaching them the word of God more than the Sunday school teachers teaching them the word of God. That's just a flat out fact. I <laughs> know it's just a fact, uh, which which I know, and that's what is going on right here uh, in verse. Uh, where was I? Was it was that thirteen? Yeah. So so all the heads of the houses were being trained on how to teach the word of God. Verse 14, and they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seven months. So this is the Feast of Tabernacle just ended last Friday again. This is when when we were in Miami Beach uh, we, lived, we, we helped plant a church um, in Miami Beach. They're having their 30-year anniversary. God willing, Seppi and I will be going down there next month. Um, we showed up two months after the church. And one of the things you see in Miami Beach are uh, during the Feast of Tabernacle, there are a lot of Jewish peoples. They have these little booths outside their home. And they're made out of palm trees. And the kids and stuff just live in these things. Um, right, it would have been there. If you went around Miami Beach last week, you would have seen these things because there's a huge Jewish population um, in Miami. I don't know if they do it up in Brookline and other places where there's a lot of Jewish folks. I, I, I suspect that they really do. Um, but that's what they did. They used to live in these booths and they would you, you see through to the stars and what it represented was that time that the, uh, the Jews were in the wilderness for 40 years, but God was faithful and he kept them. God was faithful and he kept them those 40 years. And it, it, it's, so, it's so important um, for you and me just to remember the faithfulness of the Lord because when we're in the middle of chaos and stuff, um, the, the devil just brings in lies like, who is your God? Well, here's my God, this is what he's done. So they start listing out um, all those things. Uh, so verse 15 and says and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying go out to the mountain bring all the branches branches of oil trees myrtle branches palm branches and branches of leafy trees to make booths as it is written so you can go to Leviticus five years ago or whenever it was we're in Leviticus we read all about it feast of tabernacles one of the three feasts that um, the Jews were required to, uh, I believe it's one of the three feasts, they were required to, every Jewish male, 18 and above, was required to go to uh, Jerusalem to celebrate. Verse 16, then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one of the, uh, on the roof of his house, or in their courtyards or the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim so that the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths, or you can just say little houses. They made these little houses out of palm trees and other leafy branches and sat under the booths for since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until the day The children of Israel had not done so, and there was very great gladness. This was a really cool time to just be uh, living there. There was very great gladness. Now, it doesn't mean, verse 17, by the way, that they had never celebrated it since the time of Joshua, because they had. We saw that in the book of Ezra. But they had never celebrated it with such gladness, with such intensity, with, with uh, such a percentage of population uh, participating in it. Verse 18, also, day by day, from the first day until the last day, He read the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. Anyone remember on the last day of the feast in John chapter seven, towards the beginning of his ministry, what what Jesus did? He was in Jerusalem, John chapter 7, the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, in John chapter 7, it says in John chapter 7, verse 37, on, that, on the last day, at that, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out, saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. That was the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus got up and he declared that. He shouted it out, says with a loud voice, he cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures had said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. On the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the two priests got these huge jars of water. Remember what happened in the wilderness? There was no water, and uh, Moses spoke to the rock, or Moses, rather, hit the rock, and the water flowed forth. And so part of the faithfulness of God was supplying the... Remember, this is Feast of Beasts, a, a fe- um, Feast of, um, it's the, rather, it's the Feast of Booths, of tabernacles. They had built these little houses out of branches and to commemorate how God was faithful in the wilderness for 40 years, one of the ways he did that was providing water. So the, these two huge jars, right in the temple, they would pour out the water. And so as the people are looking at that, Jesus is saying, come to me for living water. So, um, he is a fulfillment of that feast. Many people don't think it's been fulfilled yet, and therefore Jesus will come on his return during the Feast of Tabernacles, but uh, I don't know. Jesus says you don't know the day, the hour, or even the season, so I don't uh, ascribe to that theory. But uh, that's that's what... Um, That's what is going on now. And it says there was just great gladness. Great gladness in the land. Chapter 9 of Nehemiah. Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dust on their heads. So this is not too long after that. They're really, they're growing in the Lord. And when you start growing in the Lord, you start realizing Wow, there's some real, true garbage in my life. I mean, that I need to get rid of, and that's what happened. They started reading the Word of God for the first time ever, and they're discovering they've done some real, they've been doing some real bad stuff, including uh, they had. It's it's a, a little unclear here how they, they they had been joining themselves to the world. There's just, wasn't just Jews here. There was all these uh, other nations worshiping. Pagan gods, those people lived around them, and somehow they were becoming unequally yoked with them, I think, in more ways than just marriage, just multiple kinds of ways. Verse 2 says Then those of, Israel, of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day and for another-fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. That's a pretty cool scene there. They're reading the Bible for one-fourth of the day and the next-fourth they're, they're just worshipping the Lord. There's a response to it. You know, at... Uh, I... I... Um, I, I Invite you, please, if you're able to join us Sunday morning at, at prayer at 9: 30 a.m. It's a wonderful time. It's my favorite day. It's my, it's my favorite time every week. My favorite time is 9:30 a.m.. prayer. We're crying out to the Lord. It's a powerful time. One of the things that we pray for uh, on Sunday mornings is what happens in the food court.) <laughs> after the service. And I gotta tell you, if all people are doing, they're talking about the football game that's coming up that that afternoon, uh, or they're talking about what they did this week, or they're talking about what happened at their work, if that's it, if that's all that's going on, I failed. I didn't, I, I, the, the, the sermon, the message was not, I shouldn't say I, necessarily I failed, but, but it's, it, it clearly what the Lord wants to happen didn't happen. He wants a response of worship. He wants a response of praise. He wants people, notice here, it says, the first fourth they read the word of God, the second fourth they confess and they worship, and, and just spilling out into the, into the food court, and we pray at the 9.30 prayer, Lord, that the worship service would just continue in the food court, and as people go home, we get so religious, we feel justified, and we check off a religious checkbox because we just sat in a worship service and heard the word of God. God's intention for the worship service is that it spill out into the food court, into our lives, into our homes after. And that's what's going on here. It's just a beautiful thing. There's a, a tremendous work of God going on. Verse 4, Then Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chanani stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherbiah, Hodijah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah, said. So the rest of this chapter is a prayer to God. Now, I haven't checked out myself. I've heard that this is the longest prayer in the Bible. Uh, Unless, I don't know, unless you consider something like Psalm 119 a prayer, I don't really think Psalm 119, Psalm 119 is a song to God, but this is more a prayer to the Lord. Depends, I guess, how you're defining prayer. But, you know, when you see prayer here, this particular prayer. I always say, when you see a prayer, study it. And we're going to go through it right now. But uh, it is a recap of Jewish history. And one of the things that is going on here, it's, it's a recap of their failures, but also how each, with each failure, the Lord... Um, With each failure, the Lord redeemed. The Lord forgave. And, you know, the Bible does say in Hebrews chapter 10, it's quoting, I don't remember where it's quoting, somewhere in Deuteronomy, where it says, The Lord remembers your sins no more. What that means, it doesn't mean you don't, what that means, it it doesn't mean that the Lord will never bring them to mind. To you because sometimes he has to bring your sins to, to, to your mind again in order to remind you of his faithfulness. And sometimes we need to be reminded of our foolishness. And that's what's going on here. He's reminding them of their foolishness. When the Bible says he remembers our sins no more, it means he never remembers our sins for condemnation. And condemnation is of the devil and what it leads to is sending you away from God. Conviction is something that happens which sends you to God. And so he never remembers your sin, meaning puts it back under your nose for the purpose of having you wallow in your guilt. So in marital conflict, so often, the husband and the wife, the wife, they're reminding each other of what they did. You did this in the past. This happens constantly in marriage counseling. People are going back and forth, and they're violating the command, I believe it's a command, that just as God doesn't do that with you, put Here, smell this. Smell this. You guys want to, I don't know if I should say this. Do you mind if I just kind of gross you out a little? Uh, uh, Sue doesn't look like she wants. We we had a dentist when I was a kid. She used to floss our teeth and then because she would take the floss and put it right under our nose. And she's like, listen, you guys need to floss, and this is what happens. And my brother Mark and I used to laugh because this, this dental hygienist, I'm sorry to gross you out. Sue, sorry about that. I mean, you know. but um, But the Lord doesn't put our sin under our nose or whatever for the purpose of driving us to condemnation. But from time to time he does to show us our foolishness. And the same concept, by the way, is in the book of Deuteronomy where Moses is pleading with them, listen, when you go into the, when you go into the promised land, please obey the Lord. And I think it's in chapter 9 where he says, where he says, listen, um, he's pleading with them and he's giving them all these arguments about why they should not rebel from the Lord. And the last one he gives is, you guys have messed up so badly with the Lord and he forgave you anyway. Please don't do it again. And that's kind of what's going on here because uh, the Bible does say in First um, John do not love the world, chapter 2, verse 15, or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And, and there's such a thing as attaching yourself to the world, and usually it's with people, where it's just going to drag you down. Now, Jesus does say that we're to be a friend of sinners. But when we go into a situation where we're a friend to someone who's a sinner, we have to remember, really, they're a ministry. They're a ministry. And we have to handle the situation very lightly, carefully. But joining with them in such a way that their behavior is rubbing off of us and our spiritual temperature is going on is a problem. So so that's what they were doing. Verse 2, they were... They stood and they confessed their sins and iniquities um, and they separated themselves from foreigners, verse 2, meaning they were doing something. I don't know. They were doing something, participating in pagan feasts or whatever that was um, really not okay. And so in verse 5, this is what they pray. Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed... Be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are, Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. And so you can see the Lord's Prayer, right, which is an abbreviated version of this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name, and 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 just that the whole world would be would hallow you. Verse seven: You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and um, gave him the name Abraham, meaning completely by grace. Abraham's family worshipped pagan gods. He just brought him. Um, he chose him and brought him out of Ur meaning he got got them to leave the world and I guess they had been joined to the world and they, they had been joined to the world here at the beginning of chapter nine. Somehow they were linked to the world or to the worldliness uh, 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 of things, and, and, and they're reminded, Wow, this is you brought Abraham out of uh, the land of Ur for the purpose of, of him breaking from that. Verse 8, you found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites, to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words, for you are righteous. Meaning that land which even today, this whole thing in Israel, it's all about a dispute between probably the descendants of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and and the Jews. They were eventually... Uh, the Jews came in and possessed. Verse 9, You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard the cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the people of the land. And for you knew that they acted proudly against them, so you made a name for yourself as it is this day. So when the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt with those ten plagues. Remember when they crossed, before they crossed the Jordan, two spies went into Jericho, and all the people already knew about God, because God had done all these incredible miracles in Egypt. That's what it's referring to there. Verse 11, you divided the sea before him, so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and their are And their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. Listen, Calvary Chapel, from time to time, you need to just pause in the middle of your fear and anxiety and remember how the faithfulness in the Lord. Those mile markers, those times in your life where the Lord was so faithful. Verse 13, you, you came down also on Mount Sinai. You spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. So the Sabbath was implemented during the wilderness time after they had escaped, uh, not escaped, were delivered from Egypt. Verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, referring to manna, and brought them water out of the rock for thirst and told them to go in to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. But they... And our fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey. They were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But if you have a pen, circle the next six lines. But... You are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. So I have a question for you. When you mess up really bad, whatever it is, and you think that the Lord is super angry at you because of what you just did, let's just say you get worried um, about, let's just say you're filled with fear and worry and you go out and you get totally drunk and you wake up and you're convinced that the Lord's really angry at you do you know why you're convinced that the Lord is angry at you? Or do you know why it might be that you're convinced He's really angry at you? Anyone want to guess? Uh, Maybe. What? Shame? Okay. Pride? Pride? The reason, one reason you may be convinced the Lord is really, really angry at you, which he's not because all the anger went on Jesus Christ. But The, the reason you think he's really, really angry at you is because you personally are quick to anger and you have projected your poor character, ungodly character on God. But it says here he's slow to anger but what we do is we project our bad character and we just assume that God's like us. But he is not like us. He's slow to anger. Now that doesn't justify us saying, oh, he's not angry at me. I'm going to go out and get drunk again. No, we, we, we repent because he's so gracious and merciful. But that's what we do. We project our sin full tendencies, and we just assume that God is the same. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is not provoked to, among other things, he's not provoked to anger. All the anger went on Jesus Christ. That's not the basis that he deals with you anymore. He deals with you with different things. Now, he may chasten you, and he may have to kick your behind bad and that may be real painful but it's not really an anger thing anymore it's a loving god giving you a whooping it says he is ready to pardon gracious and merciful slow to anger abundant in kindness is this awesome or what he is abundant in kindness And he did not forsake them. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves. That's pretty bad. I mean, that's like exceedingly bad. They made a molded calf for themselves. After he had rescued them from slavery, the bondage of slavery. Moses is gone for however many days he was gone. They're like, I don't know what happened to Moses. Let's, Aaron, make us a calf. They made a calf for themselves and said, this is your God that brought you up out of Egypt and worked great provocations. Yet in your manifold mercies you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them day by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them. That's very interesting there, especially in light of what we just read. It says, we do not have the Holy Spirit inside of us until Jesus was glorified, but the Holy Spirit still prior to Jesus coming instructed his people. He may not have been inside of them, but he instructed his people, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst, Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations and divided them into districts so that they took possession of the land of Sihon, the land of the king of Heshbon, the land of Og, king of Bashan, you multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. So the people, verse 24, went in and possessed the land you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land the Canaanites and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land that they might do with them as they wished and they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of all goods cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance, so they ate and were filled and grew fat. Now, I personally don't believe that's talking about physically they grew fat. That's an expression in the Old Testament of prosperity. And they lighted themselves in your great goodness. We're going to stop there. Uh, Matt, can we have someone uh, switch with Nadia so she can come do a worship song? Matt Harris, can you do a worship song? Uh, you know, the, Bi- the Bible doesn't teach that we should be ascetics. So an ascetic is someone who thinks if you're really spiritual, you will live basically uh, in such a way that you never have a big barbecue, you never, uh, you know, you don't, uh, if you have a car, it's got to be at least a year before the year 1995. Um, If you go on a vacation, the most that you uh, could ever do is maybe uh, stay at your grandmother's house and not spend anything. Right here, it's very clear. He says he gave them vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. They ate and filled it and grew fat. Now, the Bible has some really direct things to say from Genesis to Revelation about giving richly to the Lord. Giving to the point of being, it's, if it's not hurting, it's, it's a problem. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, I gave three sermons at the beginning of this year if you want to know more on that. But, but the Lord is into blessing us. Now, it may take some time before you're blessed in the way that you have a vineyard and an olive grove and this type of thing, but that's what the Lord, as a general rule, that's what he wants for his people. He wants to bless them with these things. And uh, this is not a, a, a sermon about, go off, you're going to get a Maserati someday, but but, but um Uh, because that can do a lot of damage, unless it's the will of God. If it's the will of God, whatever, okay, you may be one out of the one billion Christians he saved that he wants a a Maserati. But um, uh, it's important to understand that the Lord loves to bless, and, and, and the reason he gives the structure of a family and a father and a mother and kids, a father loves to bless his kids with this kind of thing. He does. It's no different with the Father in heaven to give good gifts to you and so this prayer he's reminding them of the goodness of god and how wonderful god is and just declaring that so important calvary chapel to make that a part of your prayer life just thanking the lord thanking the lord and writing it down One of my prayer journals, I have a bunch of journals. It's just listing out, um, putting the day uh, and the month and the year and writing out on that day something that I'm thankful for, what the Lord is doing and has done. It's important, uh, not necessarily that you do it in that form, but that you make that a part of your prayer life.